Bible in a timely place for us to um, study uh, as we look forward to Christmas Eve and the person of Jesus and his coming and what he came to do. So Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. As we begin this Advent series, we um, need to understand a little bit about God, and we'll start by talking about God. Advent, the word Advent just means coming. Jesus, we know as Christians, is coming one day, he'll come back, but his first coming was a couple of thousand years ago where he came to earth as a man. And we need to understand a little bit about who God is to understand Advent. We need to know that God, the Bible says, that God is a God who is missional. God is on mission. God himself actually is a missionary. Sometimes we think of words like mission or missional or missionary, and what we tend to think of is a particular thing that the church does or a particular line item in the budget. Oh, that's the missions budget, or these are the missionaries that we're training to send overseas. That's, all of that's very good and necessary, and it is a part of what the church does. But more fundamentally than that, than, a, than, than, than an aspect of what the church does and some people that the church sends, more fundamental than that, is that mission is part of who God is and what God does. God himself is a missionary. God himself is active. God himself pursues man. We need to know about our salvation, if you're a Christian, that God does not wait for us to reach up to him because it would never happen. But instead, God comes on mission and he reaches down to us. That's how we're saved. We're not saved by attaining a certain level of spiritual cleanliness or good works or good attitude or good thinking. None of that can reach God. And not only can it not reach God, it, we're not interested by nature in reaching God, let alone or capable of it. God actually reaches down to us. And that's what we see in Advent. We see God coming. God actually comes to man. He reaches down to us to rescue man. And this morning, as we begin this small series, we're going to look at the why of Advent. Why did Jesus do that? What is it that he was seeking to accomplish as he came as a man, as he came to rescue why did he do that and what was he seeking to accomplish? And here's one of the main things I'd like for us to consider this morning. Jesus did not just come to forgive sin. Jesus did not just come to alleviate us of God's wrath. Jesus did not just come to be a good model. Jesus did not only come for any of those things. He did come for those things, but he didn't only come for those things. Jesus came, friends, to make you and I family. Jesus came to make you and I family. Yes, he came to forgive. Yes, he came to absorb the wrath of God. Yes, he came to stand in our place as our substitute savior. Yes, he came to be our example. As we read through the gospels, we see the example of the perfect man. But none of those things are the full picture of what Jesus did. All of those things are leading to his inviting us into his family and adopting us into his family through his work. 
So as we consider the why of Advent, that's the big idea, and that's where we're headed. We're going to unpack that this morning. Jesus came to make us family. We also need to know that we did start as family. God created man and woman, and he created us not at odds with him, not in enmity towards him, not with a big gap between us and God. He actually created us as his family. He created us to be in communion with us, to be in community, to know him, to live with him, to obey him, to glorify him. God created man and woman as part of his family. But in Genesis 3, that family was broken. Our first parents decided they wanted to rebel against their father. They didn't want to listen to their father. They didn't want anything to do with their father. They decided that they were going to do what they wanted to do and not what their father told them to do. And the family was then broken. So Jesus comes, friends, to repair that break. Jesus comes to bridge that gap. And the first thing we need to understand about that is that Jesus comes and he delivers us from all that stands in between us and God. That's the first thing for us to consider this morning. Jesus came to be our deliverer. He came to, to deliver us from all that separates us from the family of God and to bring us in to the family of God. Hebrews 2, 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus comes to deliver us from all that separates us from God. And the first thing, the most fundamental thing, the main thing, the primary thing that separates us from God is sin. And as a result, death. Jesus comes to deliver us first from sin and death. Sin is the, fundament, the fundamental barrier between us and God. It's the fundamental thing that has disconnected us from God, and as a result of being disconnected from God, we experience death. When we think of sin, I think we typically think of it in a horizontal way, man to man, person to person. That sin is something I do to another person that harms them or that's wrong, or that somebody does to me that is harmful or wrong. We typically think of sin horizontally, man to man, and in terms of moral wrongdoing. Lying, cheating, stealing, perjury, violence, murder, selfishness, okay, active actions. Active actions. Sin is, is part of sin, is doing things we shouldn't do. You should not lie. You should not murder. You should not commit adultery. There's a lot of things you should not do. And when we decide that we're going to do those things, instead of not doing them, that is sin. It's the breaking of a law. Sin is, not, sin is doing what we should not do, but sin is also not doing what we ought to do. Sin is not just active actions. It's also failing to do what we should do. Sin is failing to speak up when we need to speak up. Sin is failing to defend the weak and the needy. Sin is failing 
to provide for our family when we ought to provide for our family. Okay, there's a lot that we should do that when we say, eh, I'm not going to do it, well, that's also sin. The Bible has a lot of terms for sin. Trespasses, evil, crookedness, lawlessness, wrongdoing, wickedness, stiff neck, hard heart, folly, among many others. It's important we understand there's lots of outworkings of sin. There's many manifestations of sin. But underneath all of that, the primary thing that sin is, the most foundational thing that sin is, is a disposition of our hearts. Sin is not primarily action. Sin is not primarily lack of action. Sin is a heart issue. It's a disposition of our heart towards God that's in rebellion against God. That is the main thing, the main root of sin. A disposition of our heart that's in rebellion against God. Adam and Eve were the first to rebel against God. God gave them clear commandments. I've given you the whole earth to have dominion over, to have rule over, to cultivate. I've given you everything that you'd ever need, and I'm with you. We get to do this together. You get to be under me and serve me and glorify me, and through that, you'll experience joy. Just one thing. Don't eat from this tree. And Adam and Eve said, decided in their hearts, we don't want to listen to that. Yes, they were tempted, but ultimately they chose to do what God said not to do. They were the first to rebel against God, but make no mistake, friends, every human being that has ever lived since them has followed in their footsteps. Every human being, to one degree or another, has failed to obey God, love God, and honor God. Every human being, to one degree or another, has put themselves on the throne and lived according to our dictates instead of God's. This is what the Bible means when it says, when Paul says in Romans 3, he says, no one is good, not even one. Before God, not one person is good. All have sinned, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, you might think, you might say, well, that's, not, that's of course not true. I know lots of good people. In fact, I'm one of those good people. I don't do really bad things. I don't hurt anybody I don't lie. There's maybe some little white lies. That's about it. Um, I don't murder anybody. I've never done anything real bad. I treat my wife well or I treat my husband well. We raise our kids well. I provide for my family. I do all the things I ought to do. I'm generous with my money. I give it to people. I give it to those who are in need. Or I just mind my own business, man. I just stay at home and I don't do much. How could that be harming anybody? That's typically how we think of good and evil of sin and not sin, of a good person and a bad person in our own minds. That's kind of how we think of it oftentimes. And I would say this, yes, we we can be morally decent people 
in each other's eyes? Yes, according to your standards and my standards, a lot of people that we know are good, and there's some people we know who are really bad, who have done really bad things. But here's what we need to know. At a heart level, we have all sinned against God. We have all rebelled against God. At a heart level, God looks at us and he sees fallen people in rebellion against him. All of our hearts are infected by sin and in bondage and slavery towards to sin. All of us by nature, the Bible says, our hearts are spiritually dead and therefore we're at enmity with God. You might say, I don't have any enmity towards God, so this doesn't apply to me. Um, I don't even know if God exists and I certainly don't hate him and if he does exist, I don't think he has any, I don't think he cares what I'm doing. And I would just say, ignoring God and pretending that he does not have any bearing in your life may be the, the worst type of sin. That may be the worst rebellion against God. So from our sinful hearts, acts of sin against others pour forth, that's horizontal, but primarily our sin is vertical. It's against God. He is the most offended party. As we sin, we pile up a mountain of debt against God. It's a debt that we cannot pay. It's a gap that we cannot close, and it leads to a death that we cannot escape. Romans 6.23 sums it up the best. The wages of sin is death. What we earn for our sin, what we get for our sin, the payoff for our sin is death. That's physical death, but it's also spiritual death. Forever alienated and separate from God. Friends, all that to say, human beings, you and I in this room, and every human being on earth today, everybody in our city, everybody in your family, everybody you've ever met is in desperate need of deliverance. We're in desperate need of deliverance from sin, deliverance from debt, deliverance from slavery, deliverance from death. And friends, Jesus comes to deliver us. Jesus comes to pay our debt. Jesus comes to set us free. Galatians 1, 4. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Jesus came to deliver us. 1 Corinthians 6:20. You were bought with a price. Jesus came to pay our debt. Romans 6, 6 through 7, we know that our old self was crucified with him. That's the old man apart from Christ. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Jesus came to set us free, friends. He came to set us free from sin and death. Hebrews 2.14, Therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. He came that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death. Verse 15, And deliver all of those 
who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, Jesus comes to deliver us first from sin and death. The main thing that separates us from the family of God, Jesus destroys. The main thing that makes us by nature enemies of God, Jesus removes. That's our sin. And the main penalty and consequence for our sin, Jesus satisfies. That's death. Jesus came to deliver us. He came to be our deliverer. And the first thing he delivers us from is sin and death. In addition, Jesus came to deliver us from Satan. He himself partook of flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death. That is, the devil. Jesus came to deliver us from Satan. Second Corinthians calls Satan, Paul calls Satan the God of this age, or the God of this world. Lowercase g, the ruler of this world. Ephesians 2 says that Satan is the spirit who's at work in the sons of disobedience. All of those who are non-Christians in rebellion against God, Satan is at work in them. He's at work in us before we are Christians. We all, friends, have, have two options, or we fall into one of two categories. We're either in, in Christ and part of the family of God, or we're in Adam and we're part of the family of Satan. Every human being falls into one of those two categories. Jesus says, says it this way in John chapter 8. Jesus is looking at religious leaders and others who are against him, who hate him, who want to kill him, and he says this to them. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. But you don't love me. Verse 44 of John chapter 8. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. We all fall into one camp. In Christ, part of God's family. In Adam, part of Satan's family. That's what Jesus says. That's what Paul says. That's what the author of Hebrews says, that we're under Satan's power, his dominion, his rule, apart from Christ. Jesus comes to deliver us from the family of Satan and usher us into the family of God. In Jesus, the grip of Satan is broken. In Jesus, the dominion of Satan is vanquished. Sin, the grip of sin in our life is broken. The dominion of sin in our life is broken. But also, friends, the head of our family has been destroyed, of our old family. Satan has been destroyed. We'll get here in a moment, but you might think, well, I think there's Bible verses that say that Satan's actually still alive and well and he's active and he's trying to eat Christians and do bad things. So yes, Satan is alive and well and active, but the decisive blow has been struck. There, there's, there's no coming back from that. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He delivers us from sin, but also delivers us from, from Satan. Number three, Jesus came to be our deliverer and to deliver us from fear. Verse 15. Jesus came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He partook of our flesh that led him to death. He had to die for sin. It destroyed 
the power of death, that is the devil. But also he delivers his people from the fear of death through which we are subject to lifelong slavery. Friends, in Christ, you are delivered from fear. You are delivered from fear. Now you might ask, well, aren't there lots of things to fear still? I mean, isn't Satan, again, still alive and well? Isn't he prowling around, doing stuff, bad stuff, looking for fat sheep to eat, gobble up? Isn't Satan still doing that stuff? Yes, he is, but he no longer has dominion. You say, well, sin's been broken, but I'm pretty sure I still struggle with sin. I'm pretty sure that sin is still in me. It still dwells in me. I'm pretty sure I'm still disrespectful. I'm pretty sure I still have lust issues. I'm pretty sure I'm still selfish as all get out. I'm pretty sure, you know, I have all kinds of issues. So sin is still in me. That makes me scared sometimes. Yes, sin still dwells in us, but sin is no longer our master. We're no longer a master. As human beings by nature, the Bible says that we are sin. Like it's not something we do, it's, it's who we are. We are sin. In Christ, we are no longer sin. We do sin, but it's no longer who we are. We have a new heart, a new life, a new mind, new desires. Jesus has delivered us from sin and the fear of sin. Well, won't I still die? This passage says, Jesus delivered us from the fear of death. Well, won't I still die? There's lots of danger in the world. There's lots of things that can kill me or harm me or harm my family. There's lots of things to fear. Yes, death is still in the world. Yes, yes, you will die physically. But in Christ, death no longer has the final say. In Christ, we've been made spiritually alive. And physical death has no dominion over that. John Calvin says this on Hebrews 2. Jesus hath so delivered us from the tyranny of the devil that we are rendered safe. And he hath so redeemed us from death that it is no longer to be dreaded. And though the devil still lives and constantly attempts our ruin, yet all his power to hurt us is destroyed or restrained. It is great consolation to know that we have to do with an enemy who cannot prevail against us. This is the fact of the work of Jesus. He's defeated sin. He's delivered us from sin. He's defeated Satan and delivered us from Satan. He's defeated death and has delivered us from death. And friends, let me just exhort you. We must remind ourselves about this fact every day. We must immerse ourselves in this gospel every day. We must take this gospel and and preach it to our own hearts 
every day. There really is not a day that goes by that we're not in desperate need of that gospel. Charles Spurgeon said that half our fears arise from neglect of the Bible. I, it's, I don't know how many times, but it happens often where I'll be talking with somebody who's really struggling and I'll say, okay, um, let's talk through this, let's work through this. Let me ask you just a few questions. And one of the first questions I ask is, are you, are you in your Bible? Are you reading your Bible? Are you getting time with God in Scripture? And too often the answer is no, not really. To tell you in my own heart, oftentimes when I'm struggling or I have a heart issue or there's something off, I examine my life, say, okay, am I getting communion time with God? And too often the answer is no. Now you might think that sounds trite, that sounds ignorant. You know, Bible's not some magic key where I just read it and everything feels better all, the, all of a sudden. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. I understand that. I know that. I know that we don't just pick our Bibles up and it's like, whoosh, I took a magic pill and I feel better. My emotions are healthy. I'm no longer angry. I'm no longer physically sick. I understand, I understand that. So don't hear me say that. Don't hear me say the Bible's a magic bullet and you just read it and you'll just, you'll feel better. It's like taking steroids before you go to the gym. Boom, that's your, it's your spiritual fix and it, and it makes everything better. It's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, however, is if we neglect our Bibles, we will starve ourselves spiritually. And we will fear much that we would not fear if God, through his word, was speaking into our life and into our heart. We will. Half our fears do, at least, arise from neglect of the Bible. Yes, we need community. Yes, we need good counselors in our life. Yes, we, there's times we need other things. But friends, we need scripture. We need God's word. We need it daily. In scripture, God has revealed to us the work of Jesus. He has delivered you, friend. If you're in Christ, if you know Jesus, if you've looked to him and repented of sin, if he is your savior and your Lord, that's evidenced in your life by you seeking to obey him and bring fruit for him, however imperfect, if that's you, Jesus has delivered you from the grip of sin. He's delivered you from the taskmaster, Satan. He's delivered you from eternal death. And that, friends, is what we need to live on now. We don't just look forward to a heaven that's off in the distant future, but it has no bearing on our lives now. No, all of that is extremely critical for us to understand and know as we live now. 
Jesus came to be our deliverer. What do you fear? What do you fear? What are the things in life that cause you the most pain, anguish, grief, uncertainty, doubt, that consumes your thought and energy? The money, finances, some of you it might be a temptation. Maybe you're young, getting your family started. Maybe you're older and you have enough money, but it's not quite enough. You can't stop thinking about it. Maybe it's somewhere in between. Is it relationships? Maybe you have marriage problems that seem so daunting and impossible. Maybe you don't have a marriage and that's your problem. You want one and you can't stop thinking about it. Maybe it's your children. You're having a difficult time raising them or they're wayward. Maybe you're scared of illness and you take every possible step that you can think of to make sure that you don't get sick, that you don't get ill, that nothing bad happens to your body, that nothing averse affects your health because that to you would be hell. That would be the worst. So you want to make sure everything I do is, I don't want to get ill. That's what I fear. Maybe it's death, your own death. Maybe it's loss of somebody else. What do you fear? All of those things are real fears. They're, they're real stressors in a fallen world. And I don't presume to speak some magic sentence that will heal all of your fears instantly. I do want to remind you from God's word, I do want to remind you that no matter what you fear, you need to know Jesus is bigger, Jesus is better, Jesus has delivered you positionally from anything that you can ever fear, from anything that can harm you, and Jesus will deliver you practically. Friends, you can trust Jesus. You can trust Jesus. 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Psalm 32, 7, you are a hiding place for me. You, God, are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Psalm 34, 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Jesus comes to be our deliverer, church. He is your deliverer. But his work doesn't end there. Remember, Jesus didn't just come to make a bunch of forgiven individuals who are independent and doing their own thing. He came to make us family. (coughs) He delivered us from everything that stands between us and God. And he himself becomes our brother. Jesus came to be our brother. Jesus came to be our deliverer, and Jesus came, furthermore, to be our brother, to bring us into his father's family with God as our father and Jesus as our elder brother. Look back with me at Hebrews 2, chapter 11. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. Jesus, who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, his people, have one source. We're from God the Father. 
God is the Father of us, and Jesus calls God Father. Father, Jesus is the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the source, Jesus, was sent to earth by the Father as the sanctifier to sanctify us. We're the recipients. Now listen, Hebrews 2.11, that is why he's not ashamed to call them us brothers. That is why he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Why? Because God is his father and God becomes our father. And when Jesus looks at us, he sees brothers and sisters. Jesus comes to be our brother. Hebrews 2 verse 14. Since therefore the children, us, share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death. He became like us. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. He became like his brothers, like us in every respect. Some, Some of you know that Jesus came and you know all of this is true, but I fear that you might view it as a distant, theoretical, impersonal fact that you might find hard sometimes to connect to life. I know it's like you compartmentalize. You know, I know Jesus came. I know he's Savior. I know he became a man. Space. Now I'm here. And, you know, life is hard. I know Jesus came, but that's over there, and it's distant. It's hard to connect. (coughs) It's hard to understand how that affects me now. I think it's easy for us to picture this when we look at real-world Analogies, it's easy for us to picture the president in the Oval Office, very, very distant, signing a pardon, right? The president has the power to pardon. He's like, okay, looks like a good, I'm going to sign this pardon, boom. Distant, never knows the person, not in touch with the person, no relationship. It's very gracious and very merciful and very loving, but there's no real connection. He's very far away signing a pardon. I think sometimes we can think of God like that. He just, he pardons us, but he's very distant. Let me just tell you, friends, that's not how God pardons. God doesn't just have a nebulous love for us that we never really get to connect with, and he's kind of out there, but he's distant. God doesn't just love you, Christian. He actually likes you. He actually wants to be with you. God doesn't just have capricious mercy. He actually sought you out. God doesn't just pardon from a distant office. He desires to be with you. So much so that he becomes our brother. He becomes our brother. Jesus, when he becomes a man, becomes our brother. A couple ways we're going to look at. Number one, he assumes our nature. Verse 14, we share in flesh and blood, so he himself partook of the same things. Verse 17, he had to become like his brothers in every respect. God actually became a man. He became a man physically. He had a body, he had hands, he had feet, he had arms and legs and a circulatory system and a nervous system, he had everything. He became a man mentally, cognitively, He had a brain that worked like ours. 
He had to think through things. He had to learn things. He had to read his Bible. He became a man emotionally, experiencing joy, anger, loss, grief, heartache. He became a man in all of those ways, not partially. It was not an illusion. Actually, 100% man in every way that you and I are man. Being a man means he also assumed our weaknesses. Consider with me, the God who created food becomes starving. The God who commands the seas becomes thirsty. The God who is inexhaustible gets exhausted and must sleep. The God who is unchanging experiences loss and grief. The God who has no adversary that can stand up to him feels pain. He assumes our weaknesses. And number three, he assumes our weaknesses all the way into death. One author says this, what could be more fitted to confirm our faith? Here, his infinite love towards us appears, but its overflowing appears in this, that he put on our nature, that he might thus make himself capable of dying. On the cross, the God-man stands between God and man. Hebrews 2, 17, he became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for his people. That just means he stands between God and man. As God and as man, he connects man to God. The God-man on the cross stands between God and man. On the cross, sin is satisfied. There's no more penalty, friends, the barrier is torn down. On the cross, Satan is vanquished. There's no more power and dominion over you. On the cross, death is defeated. No more fear. On the cross, through the cross, Brother Jesus ushers us in to the family of God. Romans 8.15, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You've been adopted, Christian, into the family of God. You've been adopted through the blood of Christ, through the cross of Christ. The penalty of sin has been removed. The fear of death has been destroyed all through this one-time event that happened in time and history. Jesus came and died to deliver and become our brother. The final thing we need to know, however, is that all of this, though it did happen through a one-time event, the effect is not one time. In fact, we receive daily help through this one-time event by our brother, Jesus. Lastly, Jesus came to be our helper. Jesus came to be our helper. Verse 18 of Hebrews 2. Because he himself, Jesus, has suffered when tempted. Because he came to be our deliverer. Because he died to deliver us from sin. To deliver us from Satan. To deliver us from fear. Because he became our brother. He became weak. He became like us to the point of death. Because he did all that, he's able to help those who are being tempted. 
Jesus has delivered you from sin and from death and from fear. But let me just ask you this, friend. Do you still struggle with sin? I'd imagine you'd say yes. Do you still struggle with fear? I'd imagine you'd say yes. Jesus has delivered us, but Jesus hasn't left us to figure the rest out. Jesus is our ever-present helper who's experienced all the temptations and all the fear and all the anxiety that you have. Jesus has experienced everything that you have. And Jesus came out in obedience to God. Jesus came out in victory where we have failed. And friends, now being in Christ, Jesus, our helper, applies all of that to us. There is nothing that you go through in life as one of God's people, as a brother or sister of Jesus Christ, where Jesus is not with you, helping you, every second in every single temptation. So friends, as we prepare to remember and participate in worship through communion, remembering what Jesus did, his body broken, his blood spilled, his life temporarily ended, cut off, so you and I can be joined in, may we ask for the help that Jesus provides Jesus' death was a one-time event, but Jesus' help is a daily offer. Amen? Jesus, we, we, we thank you for your coming. We thank you that you advented. We thank you that you are a God on mission who didn't leave us to die, who didn't leave us to be separate from you for eternity, but you came, God, with the intent and the motive of love to bring us into your family. Jesus, as your brothers and your sisters and Father, as your children, I pray, Lord, that as we sing songs of worship to you, as we partake communion to acknowledge you and, 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 and to worship you, God, I pray that we would ask for the help that you provide, that we'd receive the help that you provide, that we'd live in light of the work you've accomplished. In your good name, amen.